We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen of Setting the Pace, I would now like to welcome on two-time NBA champion, two-time All-Star, and former Indiana Pacer fan favorite, David West. David, what's going on? What's up? Thanks for having me. Of course, Ed. The pleasure's all ours. You know, David, one of uh, the best-kept secrets going on right now amongst diehard basketball fans, I think, is the upcoming Professional Collegiate League that, you know, you're a big part of, and it's set to debut next summer. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the PCL? Yeah, the PCL is where we want to uh, create another opportunity for college athletes, uh, another destination for them, uh, those who choose a different path. Uh, the guys who maybe don't fit in the current collegiate system aren't quite ready to, to take the one-and-done model that the NBA has laid out, uh, but want to come into a college path that's more specific to their professional needs. Yeah, so, so my understanding is that there's going to be eight teams in eight different cities with players being provided a scholarship as well as anywhere from fifty to one hundred fifty thousand a salary. So, how are you currently going about recruiting players, and why should they choose the PCL over other alternatives that pay as well? Right. Uh, well, one of those alternatives is you know seven thousand miles away. Um, you know, the, the, the other alternative is what uh, the NBA is doing now, um, which is compensating and looking to compensate the very best. Um, you know, most of those guys, uh, you know, probably going to be one and done type guys. We we intend to be a college league. So we're looking at guys who are going to maybe develop, uh, take a couple years, you know, two, three, four years to develop to get there. Um, but guys who want to try to maximize um, financially their opportunity to play basketball at high level during their um, their college years. 
Yeah, I loved uh, the episode that you and Ricky did on uh, Howard Beck, who's a friend of the show, on the full 48. Um, so, you know, given the fact that there's some, you know, very talented players that elect to go overseas and in the G League, like you mentioned, I know they just signed today uh, one of the top point guards for 2021. I definitely right. feel is a great market for the PCL. Uh, are we going to be able to see these games televised or mostly streamed online? Yeah, they'll be mostly streamed online. Um, we're in conversations with a few different digital, uh, potential digital partners. Um, you know, the idea is to sort of reach the consumer. So right now, even if you look at current trends, um, you know, people aren't watching games like they used to, right, through the traditional norms. Like right? people aren't sitting down in front of the TV at 4 o'clock and just watching games. The way young younger people consume games now is through highlights, you know, through streams, um, through digital outlets. And so we intend to deliver our product through the same means. Yeah, I think that's that's great. And I think that a lot of fans will be interested in it, especially if it's going to be going on during the summer when we know basketball has hit its dead point. And I think that right. having, having that other opportunity to watch you know, a different type of basketball would be great to hear, but uh, great to see. But I got to ask you, we're going to move forward here. I, I want to talk about your time as an Indiana Pacer. And first and foremost, you know, I think fans are just, they've, they've said it since you came here. You are probably the best free agent acquisition that, in Pacers history. So what made you choose Indiana as a free agent? Uh, hmm. Well, I, I really, at the time I was thinking about, you know, where I could have the greatest impact. It was really between the Pacers and the Celtics. Hmm. Um, I think, you know, what I saw with the opportunity with the Celtics was a very short window, um, you know, a two year window or so one or two year window with those guys. I think they made the conference final the year after I got my first year in Indy and then made another run and then they sort of broke up. So I looked at that. Um, when I looked at the Pacers, I saw a young team, um, you know, a team that didn't really have, you know, what I could provide, didn't have the, uh, you know, they needed what I was, I was at that point in my career, um, you know, a seasoned veteran, a guy who was, I was recovering from an ACL injury, but, um, you know, I had the benefit of having the lockout. So that was an extended, um, uh, health process and then you know once I got introduced to the health staff at uh, at the Pacers it was kind of like okay this is where I need to be because all of the you know all of my boxes were checked in terms of um, you know being able to have the proper impact and insight on the team uh, a good mix of young guys and veterans um, you know middle vets at the time and um, and then also having the, the proper health people in place that could really help me get the confidence back in my um, in my knee. Yeah, I mean, it was amazing to see, you know, when you turned down Boston and joined that Pacers team. Did you realize at the time just how uncommon it was for such a big-name free agent such as yourself to pick the Pacers? And, you know, it was evident from day one, your leadership. So was that something that they pitched to you? Hey, we're looking for a veteran leader here because we got a young team that can take the next step? Um, now, you know, I, I – you know, I think the conversations I had with 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 uh, Larry, Donnie Walsh, um, Coach Vogel, um, and B and Brian Shaw at the time were were really clear. I mean, it was like, look, you know, we need a need a starting power forward. Um, we need you know a guy who can come in here and set the tone, just in terms of our approach day to day. We got some young players that are you know can be really good, but we need to have you know strong pieces in the, in the environment. Um, you know, to keep things um, you know, in, a, in, in terms of the environment, um, to keep things clear and keep us focused and moving in the right direction. So they were very clear about that. 
Um, I didn't come in, you know, preaching or anything like that. It was more so coming in, just lending my experience at the time. I was one of the more experienced players, um, you know, had played in some some pretty high moment games and um, just sought to share that experience with the younger guys. Yeah, we know at that time, you know, the, the season before you came in, the coaches had a, you know, the Pacers had a coaching change. And right, they, right, they brought right. in Frank Vogel, got rid of Jim O'Brien, and they were pretty fun to watch, you know, towards the end of that season. You know, challenging the Bulls in a five-game series, even though they didn't win, they were still pretty competitive. Right. It, you know, one of the, you know, the Pacers that we really love as fans is Danny Granger. Yeah. And, and what he meant to that team and, you know, playing through those mediocre Pacers teams. And then finally – you know, getting a player like you, Paul George, you know, rising into the star he was, Hibbert starting to come out and become, you know, the best defensive center in the NBA. So Danny was really important to this team, but how big uh, of a loss was it when he went down with injuries trying to go up against Miami? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, that's probably the, you know, that's probably the, the missing piece to all of this. We never really made the conference run with Danny in the, in the lineup. You know, the first year we made it, um, he was hurt. And then the second year, um, you know, he was traded in February. And, um, you know, when I signed with the Pacers, I remember we were talking. And ultimately, Frank, you know, Frank's dream lineup uh, or his dream, you know, six, you know, in terms of facing the heat, three minutes to go. You know, he wanted to be able to have, um, you know, Lance, Paul, Danny, myself and Roy on the floor to challenge you know, challenge Miami in the last three minutes and then be able to use George, um, you know, to close us down the stretch in terms of being steady. Um, um, you know, we miss Danny in those in those runs because he had that unique blend of size and skill, um, but he could punish. He would punish smaller players. He would definitely take advantage of his size when at every opportunity against smaller players. And um, there were times where we missed that against against the Heat. Um, and he was a big part of, you know, Paul and, uh, uh, you know, Lance's sort of development in terms of, um, you know, reducing his role to a degree to let them flourish. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the one of those decisions that, um, you know, we probably regret, I think, as a group having had made, um, you know, during that during that, that time. Man, you had an article, I think, about a year ago, there was a comment from you kind of addressing that. And I think. Pacer fans didn't realize just how much of an impact that had because yeah, Granger was battling the injuries, but he meant just so much to that yeah. team. But I want to, if you could provide a little bit of a glimpse into what that Pacer and Heat rivalry, I'm because those matchups were so physical, and for three years in a row, these teams met, and you know, the winner was basically you know the Miami Heat. They were going to the finals each year, so right. the winner of that series was moving on to the championship. That that rivalry like for the Pacers? Yeah, you know, it was, it was a great, uh, great time. You know, we, uh, and I thought that those moments really brought the best out of everybody, um, you know, really got, you know, what, you know, all we could really muster from one another in that group um, in those series. I mean, we're facing an all-time great team um, with unquestioned Hall of Famers from the coaching staff and the leadership to the guys on the floor uh, so we knew we were up against it um, but you know we always had that that optimism that we could we could take them down um, and it just again circumstances um, you know beyond you know some of our control um, you know we really couldn't capitalize the way we wanted to when we had them on the ropes a few times. 
Yeah, we, we know it was going to be tough going up against Miami because of the big three. And, you know, the Pacers were just one of those teams that a lot of people looked at the first year when you guys played them in 2011, 2012. I think it was a lockout year. Mm-hmm. Had them in round two when we, you know, could have gone up 3-1. But I think uh, they just they stole that game four from us. But, you know, yeah. a, a lot of people were like, man, the Pacers are just kind of happy to be here. And then we were, like, determined, you know, to, hey, we're not just happy to be here one year. We're going right. to make this a rivalry. And so I just have to ask, you know, from that 2011, 2012 team, you know, going up into 2013, 2014, getting the number one seed, you know, it seemed like, you know, trading Granger was kind of the biggest, you know, thing that happened and kind of altered the way that season ended. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the moves that Larry Bird made and how that affected the roster and the mentality of the team that season? Yeah. um, You know, I think it's been – you know, sometimes it's just human nature to, 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 you know, if there's an extra piece of cake on the table or, you know, if there's an extra little cookie there, you just want to grab it and you may not need it. Um, you know, your stomach feels quite full, but you're like, ah, I'm just make room for one more. And I think that's, that's what we did. We, we just got a little greedy. Um, you know, we, um, you know, we brought in Andrew Bynum, you know, which, you know, I thought was, was sort of the, one of the things that just made it difficult, um, you know, for us to to resettle because we had Roy, we had Yamahimi, who was playing, you know, good for us um, in his backup role, and then it was just really awkward, um, you know, just how that 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 worked out. And so I thought it just created this uneasiness that we didn't need. Um, and then when Danny, you know, when Danny was traded, it was just kind of a a setback to us emotionally because we were looking forward to having Danny. I thought that he was on, uh, you know, being a pro and being a guy who's been around pros. It was a difficult environment for him. Paul had come into his own. Lance had come into his own. I mean, Lance was a borderline uh, all-star uh, one of that one of those years. So it was a different, uh, difficult situation for Danny, you know, to, to figure out his place. And he was coming off the bench. Um, and he he had accepted that. Um, but, you know, I thought that he was working his way back to being ready for when we most needed him, uh, which was going to be for that run, you know, in the playoffs. And um, in spite of that, I mean, we still were able to make, uh, you know, make a push, get through two very, you know, tough uh, series early on and then ultimately succumb to uh, to the heat again. But, uh, you know, I thought those, you know, some of those two moves in particular, um you know, just from a from a from a self inflicted wound standpoint, um, you know, again the guys who came in, they were professional. Andrew was professional. Evan Turner was professional. They were great guys. They didn't they didn't disrupt us themselves. It was more or less, um, you know, just the energy around you know the decision to move the guys that we we had and um, and the decision to you know to try to improve areas that I didn't think we needed um, you know needed much improvement. You know, while we're on the subject, one of the the players that you talked about, Roy Hibbert. Can mm-hmm. you remind the listeners just how good Roy Hibbert was when he had it going? Because a two-time All-Star, some people forget just how dominant he was defending the paint for that Pacers team. Yeah, Roy was, um, you know, unique in the fact that he, had, you know, he just embraced his his identity as a defender. Um, you know, he really worked on studying, you know, as the rules changed and the straight up became a, um, uh, you know, a play that. Um, you know, referees were, were paying attention to and also became a, a great way to defend the rim. 
um, you know, to avoid, you know, fouls and things like that. Uh, he really embraced that and was able to set himself apart from other folks. Um, you know, his offensive game, you know, at, at times was, was what we went to. Um, and he was confident. Um, I think once we, you know, started to, uh, you know, shake his confidence um, to a degree, you know, his, his play changed, but his desire to help us win, help us compete um, um, was, you know, was always there. Now, I, I want to talk about you a little bit. I know we've been kind of talking about some of the other Pacers, but one of the great things about you was just, you know, your willingness to, you know, take the big shot. And you hit a lot of big shots for the Pacers. And we know that, you know, Paul was, quote, unquote, the guy, the, the face of the team. But it was you who was kind of the backbone of the team, in my opinion, that really just kind of helped keep us, keep us together. You were kind of like the glue guy, so to speak. And I just got to ask you, you know, that Hawks series, you talked about having to go through some, you know, those first couple rounds before getting to the heat in 2013, 2014, we're down three games to two with the game on the line and you just take over. What was the mentality in that, in that series for you? Like that game, especially like so much, you guys have put so much on your shoulders to get that number one seed. And then you right. yourself in that hole against the Hawks. Yeah. So just talk a little bit about that series and, you know, the, the memories that you have from that game six. Yeah, they were, you know, the Hawks were playing, um, were playing spread, you know, spread basketball at the time, which was, you know, they were sort of one of the, you know, that's what the trend was, right? The NBA was moving toward that trend. And uh, we were still right at the point where we could, we could defend it well enough to defeat teams like that, right? We ultimately, we couldn't beat the best team at it, which was Miami at the time. Uh, but, you know, we could beat, you know, the, the other playoff teams um, that tried to play, you know, spread and, and um, you know, really rely on the three-point shot. So um, going into that series, we knew we were going to have our hands full, uh, you know, but we didn't – I don't think at any moment in that series, I think we lost the first game at home in that series maybe or something. Um, I don't think at any point did we think we were going to lose the series. You know, you know, we we were under the – in our minds, it was like, if we got to go to seven, we'll just go to seven to beat these guys. Um, right. I think we had, you know, we had, you know, we were mentally trying to recover, um, <clears throat> you know, for the last two months of the season. We were, you know, going through just, you know, I think Frank was doing everything he could to just keep us mentally on task. Um, and we were still able to hold on to the one seat um, uh, with a lot going on. And, you know, again, it, even in that game, uh, it was just a matter of like, look, we're going to get, we're going to win this game. We're not going to, uh, uh, you know, lose this game and, and see this game and, and go out like this in terms of being a, a one seed eliminated by an eight. So we were able to, um, you know, really get going. I, I thought, you know, just looking back, it was one of those just kind of key plays, um, key plays throughout where Lance in particular was making some, you know, making some, some key plays for us. And, you know, I was able to find myself in the right spots, you know, at the right time to, to capitalize for us late. And we're talking about that run that you're speaking of with the Pacers team. They have the, the one seed, you keep running to Miami. Well, the following year, unfortunately, Paul George breaks his leg in the summer Olympics. Right. Did it sort of take the wind out of that Pacers team that was looking to get past Miami and into the finals? Or what was that mentality like going into that season after that injury? Yeah, you know, um, that was another thing. You know, we um, – when Paul – when Paul got, you know, got hurt, I think Lance had already left. Mm -hmm. um, um, you know, we were uh, – we had maybe, you know, signed some guys. But I thought, you know – with us, we knew we were, you know, once Lance left, I mean, it was all going to be on Paul, just in terms of 
you know, what we, where we needed him to go. Um, you know, eventually he got there, but, um, you know, that year was the year where, um, you know, everybody was expecting him to, um, particularly after challenging Miami, those, those really three years in a row, um, was expecting him to take another big step. Um, you know, and that, you know, we were building our team around that, um, you know, to get him into that echelon of maybe he's scoring 25, 30 points a game, you know, in that a really elite space of score. And, um, you know, when he got hurt, you know, it was just kind of like, well, this is where we had kind of put all our, you know, our eggs, you know, and, um, you know, just set a bad tone for the season. Uh, I think I missed like the first month of the year with a, with a, with a crazy ankle sprain. And, um, you know, we just weren't able to recover uh, in terms of, you know, where we were, um, you know, challenging as one of the better teams in the East. Yeah, and it was it was sad to see because I think a lot of fans were just excited to, you know, I think the Heat actually had, or LeBron had actually left the Heat. Yeah, yeah, season. the following season, yeah, right. So I think fans were like, man, this could be an opportunity here since the, the Heatles are broke up. Paul comes back another year better. Of course, we we lost Lance, but I think we signed Rodney Stuckey and we had C.J. Miles that year. So, you know, there were still some pieces where you thought maybe we could try to, you know, figure out how to fill in Lance's hole there. But, you know, that year didn't go out as we planned. And the next year, that's when a lot of things change. And we know that you uh, you decided to go a different way and moved on to San Antonio for less right. money. And a lot of fans were very saddened by that because we hated to see you leave. But I'm just curious, what went into leaving Indiana with, you know, you left quite a bit of money on the table. Right, right. What, what was the big reason for you leave, leaving Indiana? Uh, well, for me, it was just um, you know, I thought I had I had gotten um, you know everything in terms of the role that I was playing. I don't think I could have played. I, you know, I wasn't going to be productive in that role that I was in. Um, gotcha. And um, you know, I was I've always been one of these guys who've been dead honest about who I am. Um, I've never been one of these guys running around like, yeah, I'm as good as the greatest guy to ever play. I'm just not, I'm just not into that. You know, I'm going to be honest with myself about where I am. So, um, you know, I knew, I looked in the mirror and said, look, man, if you, if you, if you, if if I'm, if I'm the second or third option offensively, um, and I forgot how old, I mean, maybe I was like 35 or 36. I'm like, look, you're going to be at best now with, you know, some of the guys we didn't have anymore. And, and um, I was looking at it saying, okay, you know, you're going to be a, a middle of the wrong lower half in a playoff team. Um, and that wasn't where I wanted to be. Um, and the way that I prepare, you know, the way I focus, I didn't want, um, didn't want to have to put that kind of energy in, um, into a season in terms of my preparation, because ultimately it would have, you know, taken off the last couple of years of my career. Um, so I just made a decision, you know, to fall back in terms of, you know, just really honestly look at myself, look at, look at what I wanted to get out of the game. Um, I think in, in terms of like that earnest push, um, you know, I gave everything I had in terms of those years in Indy, um, you know, getting back from an ACL to try to get us over the top, uh, and came up short and, you know, really am, you know, smart enough to understand, Hey, you know, you've got to go in a situation where, you know, you know, you have, you have to learn, you know, cause there's certain things you don't know. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, just having the ability, um, you know, to get over that hill, um, you know, wasn't there. So I was, I was willing to accept that, look for other opportunities. And, and thankfully it, um, you know, it worked out, you know, when I got to Golden State, we were able to win two championships. 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, David, as as much as it was rough to watch the Warriors just dominate through the league, every single Pacer fan was happy to see you get that ring, and then especially another one. What was that title like for you at the end of the day? I mean, did you feel like it was like the icing on the cake of a really, really good career? Yeah, I mean, it just felt good to be on top of the hill. Um, I, I, I really believe in experiences, and I was telling somebody the other day, like one of my passions is coaching youth I'm going to be coaching youth sports for as long as I can do it. Um, so I've always had this this thirst for for information and, back, and knowledge about the game because I'm constantly looking for ways to impart that to the next generation of, of athletes and young people. So, you know, going to San Antonio and having an opportunity to learn, you know, under Popovich and then going to Golden State for two seasons and having an opportunity to learn under Steve Kerr. Um, watch, you know, some of the best players in the world prepare every single day and be a part of, you know, sort of a structure um, and a focus uh, of a lofty, lofty goal, which is we're going to win a championship and set that goal at the beginning of the year and, you know, go task by task by task, checking them off the list to make sure you achieve that goal. Uh, Those are the things that I I value. And, um, you know, from the whole championship experience, it was the journey, right? It was the, the lead up, all of the gyms, you know, you know, watching and listening to how Steve, you know, dealt with, you know, Rocky times, disappointment, um, how he dealt with, you know, the pressure, um, how he coached guys, you know, watching him, watching his interpersonal skills with, with individual players and how he managed relationships with individual guys um, and really managed, you know, managed the success of a really, really, really talented, uh, you know, once in a lifetime type crew. And, um, you know, I was able to learn and be a part of that. And that's something that um, I'm immensely proud of. Yeah, and I agree with Foch. You know, I think every Pacer fan was just excited to see you get that championship because you, we know that you gave your heart and soul to this Pacers team. And anybody who doesn't think that you gave it your all, you know, they're just, you know, being nitpicky. But I, I truly believe, you know, every single Pacer was, you know, in it for the long haul. They were in it to win that championship. And, yeah. you know, we uh, we were there rooting you guys like crazy. You know how Indiana fans are. We're, we're pretty passionate about our basketball. So, right, right. Uh, just to kind of bring things here to the current Indiana Pacers, you know, we know your connection with TJ Warren and, you know, TJ has been unbelievable (laughs) this year for the Pacers. So efficient. And I just want to say, what have you noticed differently with his growth as a player? And and what do you think his ceiling can be on this team? Um, You know, again, I think that, um, I think the Pacers have a chance again, you know, to build around a a very special core. Um, I think you've got, Miles and Sabonis, um, who can anchor you inside and are not, you know, I think for all intents and purposes, man, like the small ball thing has its place. Um, but, you know, my, my hope is that they can keep those two guys on the floor um, and can play them together because, I, again, the Lakers are big. And in, in my opinion, the Lakers are, are best suited to win a championship. Milwaukee is big. And I think they're one of the top teams, you know, um, suited to win it, particularly uh, win a championship. So I think the trend of sort of playing super small um, 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 is kind of something that, you know, in terms of Indiana, they've stayed away from, but um, you know, those guys have been, you know, been great to watch. TJ has just um, continued to grow. He's, you know, he, he hasn't played his best basketball yet. You know, he's, um, he's a guy that's got, you know, a ways to go in terms of his, you know, where he tops out at, um, you know, he still has a, a, a desire to, to learn and get better. Um, he's constantly talking and, you know, working and thinking about, you know, basketball and um, he's passionate about it. 
Um, you know, doesn't have a whole lot of distractions, very low maintenance. So um, I'm happy he's having some success in Indy. And, you know, when I found out he was going there, um, you know, I told him, I was like, man, this is exactly, you know, what you need. It's the, it's the exact um, environment that you need to be in. Um, because he, you know, again, you know, Phoenix has been all over the place. He's had like five, four or five coaches, you know, in this four or five seasons there and right. just no, 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 no structure. And, um, I think it's a testament to, you know, to him and, and, and the Pacers organization, the way he's been able to come in and find his, find his way, uh, and help contribute, uh, to the team. I think that the knock on TJ Warren coming into this season was completely ridiculous because of yeah, yeah. how the Suns played. Because we're seeing right. that TJ Warren is defending very well. I mean, he has been just right. super reliable and a great addition to the Pacers. And when we're talking about current basketball right now, one thing that I always admired about your game was the mid-range jumper. I felt like you were almost automatic for mid-range to the point I used to joke around and call you Mr. Mid-range to my brother right, right, right. when I was growing up. Do you think that <laughs> analytics killed the mid-range game? Because you were very successful with it. I think that um, I think analytics has gone out of its gone out of its way um, to make a point, uh, which is that you know sometimes the numbers um, ring true, right? But I think um, what we're witnessing now is you know you got to play the game, and so there's a way that you can use analytics as a tool in the game. Um, but it's very difficult to sort of shape and frame the way you're going to play the game around an analytics approach. Um, You know, the mid-range shot is what I thought was the equalizer for Kawhi last year in his run to the championship. Um, Anybody who's, you know, who's got one eye or half a vision and is, is, is taking a look at, uh, the last chance or the last, whatever, the last dance, all Michael Jordan is doing is, is hitting, you know, mid-range shots and just, you know, exposing folks in the mid-range. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, again, analytics has its place. Um, I don't think it's killed, you know, the mid-range because players still shoot it. And I've, I've told people before, if, um, you know, if you gave Steph Curry, you know, 15, you know, mid-range jumpers, he's going to take all 15 mid-range jumpers. He's not going to ignore the, you know, the best shot available on the floor for the team. So it's really just about, like I said, you know, a games approach. You can use it as a tool to help you see things, you know, maybe determine certain ideas that you want to create, but um, not framing a whole basketball context around analytics. I, I, I would caution anybody from doing that. And that's a great segue into coach Nate McMillan, who is crucified every time the Pacers lose by fans about how he's not analytically adapted to this style of basketball. And of course, you know, you can nitpick everything, but I'm curious, you know, watching this Pacers team, do you think that there are some, you know, ways he could possibly, you know, have the team run on offense where they get more threes? Or do you think that, you know, the Pacers run a pretty efficient offense and that's why they've been so successful the last three years under him? Yeah, I've I've watched them. um, You know, I don't, again, I think the people who think that teams should just automatically shoot threes. Um, I think they're looking at, I guess the standard bearer would be the Warriors. They're looking at that equation all wrong. You know, Clay Thompson and Steph Curry were raised by NBA dads, right? Steph Curry's dad is arguably one of the greatest shooters to ever <laughs> shoot a basketball. Right, right. So these guys were raised this way, right? So it wasn't like they came into the NBA and then all of a sudden said, we're going to start, shooting threes according to some analytic approach. 
Um, so it's very hard, you know, to say that teams should approach the game that way. You got to play to your strengths. Um, I don't look at the Pacers roster and say they should just be out there chucking threes. I think that, you know, it, the games that they've lost um, haven't come down to whether or not they've they're shooting threes. I think they've just, you know, had some 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 the inability to get stops in certain places, um, and then just having a team that isn't used to winning um, in a lot of at key moments and you just you get through that with experience um you know because in my mind you know Sabonis is still fairly young right Turner is still fairly young TJ is still fairly young and hasn't had you know big game experience yet so I think a lot of that plays into um you know their inability to win and, and close out some games yeah, and it's definitely something that, you know, you want to be able to have that true playoff experience for those guys that you mentioned. It's very vital, even if, unfortunately, you come out on the short end of things. Right. But a couple of the players that you mentioned, just some surefire Hall of Famers, uh, towards the end of your career, and even in the beginning, you had the privilege of playing with a lot of future Hall of Famers. You know, your Steph Curry's, your Kawhi Leonard's, your Tim Duncan's. Um, who sticks out as maybe the most pure, talented teammate of yours during your career? Oh, wait, pure talent? You have to, that's a very, so pure talent meaning like just raw ability or? How about both then? Pure talent and then the one guy that you looked at and you said, oh my God, he's better than I thought. Um. Okay, so I would say like just in terms of the, the total, the total package, the total deal, um, it will probably have to be Steph. I would look at because, you know, Steph has had an unbelievable amount of pressure on him. Um, and my first season there was the year KD got there. Um, he had to take a back seat, um, right, as league MVP, you know, almost a 30-point-per-game score type guy, you know, huge, just huge following and all these different things. But he had to – take a back seat for like the first three months of the season, you know, allow KD the space to get comfortable, you know, to sort of take, take the stage, take front and center. And um, I thought that was, that was a, a pivotal reason why we were able to win the championship that year was, you know, really that part of it where he humbled himself to just kind of get out of the way. Um, and then having that, and then I've never seen anybody with that explosive twitch, like, that dude could just all, I mean, it's all of a sudden, it's just bang, 20 points in a quarter, bang, you know, and you look up, he got 40. It's like, yo, like just <laughs> seeing somebody just run off, you know, watching a guy on a consistent basis have 10, 12, 14, 14 0 runs by himself. You know what I mean? He has two or three of those in a game. And then you're like, dang, this guy went on an 8 0 run here. He goes on a 12 0 run here by himself. You know, starts the third quarter, scores the first 16 points. You know, just 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 sick type stuff. So when it came to, like, just that stuff, I think it was him. And then the person that I was, like, most surprised, and you guys may be surprised about this, and I've said this before, but it was Lance. Um, wow. You know, Lance, Lance has, um, you know, some of Lance's basketball instincts, natural gifts, big hands. You know, his, you know, how strong he is, physically strong he is, explosive, creative. Um, you know, Lance had, you know, some of just that raw ability, um, you know. And I understood, like, when everybody said, we wonder what, you know, people from a distance would say, what is it with that dude? And then 
you know, once, you know, I remember talking to Frank before I, I came to Indy. He was like, I'm telling you, the kid can play. He's like, don't worry about the antics. He was like, when it comes down to just straight up hooping, like, he's like, Lance can play. And he proved, you know, he proved, he proved right on that because, um, like I said, he's probably the most just raw talent, every, you know, just having the whole package, you know what I mean? Just everything in a raw form. Um, you know, Lance is one of those guys. New York City legend and uh, Dion Waiters was recently talking about playing him one on one, and I do not think that's a matchup that <laughs> Dion wants because Lance, as a one on one player, is really good. Yeah, he's tough. Yeah, he's tough. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lance, Lance still is pulling at the the strings of Pacer fans' hearts right now because there was talks before all of the coronavirus went down that Lance, you know, might be coming back to Indiana if he could figure out his China deal. Yeah, and, and fans are going crazy. So I, I, I want to follow up here and, and finish with this. I'm just going to ask you a two-part question. So my, my first question is, number one, what was your favorite moment as an Indiana Pacer? And two, can we talk a little bit about this GQ, GQ photo shoot that you guys had <laughs> and how fans have just uh, just keep pulling that picture back up throughout yeah. the last decade? You know, just talk <laughs> about that photo shoot and uh, just for fun and then your favorite moment as a Pacer. Okay, yeah, so that photo shoot was um, – I, I forgot. I think it was Paul, but um, that was just being, you know, down with the team, man. They're like, yo, we're going to do this. Everybody's got to do it. It's like, you know, either we're not going to do it or everybody's going to do it. I was like the last guy that they pulled into it. <laughs> uh, and, it was again, it was just, you know, trying to show a different side. It was something that we did um, on a light day, uh, you know, just, you know, one of those spring days in, um, uh, in Indy. Uh, so it was, like I said, it was something that, you know, we knew we were going to catch hell for it for years, but, you know, it was more or less us saying, hey, we're going to do something together. Um, and I think Paul, it was centered around Paul. Paul wanted us all to do it. He's like, man, just do this for me. So we all got into it and down. <laughs> that, that is amazing. Um, but also I got my last question for you. Yeah. You know, looking back at your career, was it to be part of the legendary 2003 NBA yeah. I mean, talking LeBron, Carmelo, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, all their all-stars. Did you have any idea that class would potential to be an all-time great like it is? No, I, I didn't. Um and that, that class went that class was super, super deep. Uh um this I've always felt like the time, the era that we were coming up in was a different um and we all crossed paths at some point or another somewhere um some of us early some of us later um but again it was just you know just a the time you know you're in just fortunate enough to be a part of the um you know the conversation with some of those i mean david you were the national collegiate player of the year that wasn't getting enough attention that's how deep yeah. <laughs> right 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 it was, uh, like i said it was uh an immensely um talented group um, you know, and, you know, obviously when you got a, a talent like LeBron coming through, I think we were all in awe, um, you know, with what he was, you know, at the very beginning. And, you know, he continues he's right now. In my opinion, and above everything else in my mind. Wow, okay, right. You can for however you want, but those three are the ones that right. are always going to come up. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's funny. I was actually listening to a redraft of that our podcast with that redraft there, and they went LeBron, Melo, Bosh, Wade, and then I, they had you going fifth. 
Yeah. So I yeah. think that's, I think that's, you know, a, a pretty great to say, Hey, in that 20 or 2003 draft, I was a top five player in right. the league. And that's, that's a great company to be with. So David, I, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on our show. It's been something we've been wanting to do for a long time. Like Fachi yeah. said at the beginning. So thanks for having me. Hey, yeah. Dave, thanks a lot. All right. Thanks guys. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. reported three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.